0: Y'all can give it up for Tyler one more time. Thanks, man. So good. All right. Well, uh, man, I am so excited for this text. Uh, even if, as you heard it read, you might have grown a little bit tense. <laughs> this text is one um, of the most teaching-heavy sections in the book of of James. There may be parts of it right now, frankly, that feel just like a little bit or more than a little bit confusing, or maybe maybe you heard it read and you were like, that seems contradictory to some other things that I've heard even in this room. So how does that work out? Let me resolve that real quick. It's not contradictory. It works really beautifully together just to resolve that uh, off the jump. We're going to get into what that looks like tonight. It's a really beautiful passage, actually, as we get into it. Um, But tonight, note takers, you can put this at the top of your page. We're going to talk about uh, what I would like to call the flow of faith. Doesn't that just sound nice? Like the flow of faith, right? That's kind of smooth. Okay. Uh, The flow of of faith right at the top of, of your page. Uh, before we get there though uh, as some of you know i uh am from florida so i went to the university of south florida and as i was going through uh, my time at usf i had to do what many of you had to do and go get a a job um and i uh ended up working I can't remember if I've shared this before. I think that I have though. Uh, I, I ended up working at Chick-fil-A. Now a, a group of people that I worked with, uh, worked at, or sorry, that I lived with worked at Chick-fil-A. It was awesome. They kind of tricked me, right? If you ever go get a job at Chick-fil-A, uh, do not work on the front counter, work in the back, right? The back's where it's at, right? So so I got tricked. They were like, the front, the front, the front. And they were like, dude, we got you. And it was kind of, I don't know, I'm tender from it still. It's fine. Uh, but, but I worked at Fowler Chick-fil-A. It was a drive through only, which is a thing you can do in Florida because it's either like nice out or hot out, which is fine. Um, So there's outdoor seating. Working at Chick-fil-A was awesome. In fact, if you work at Chick-fil-A now, you, fun fact, make twice as much as I did when I worked there. That Sucks. Um, so <laughs> I'm not bitter, clearly. Um, right. So something really interesting about our Chick Fil A, though, is that we we worked. Uh, we our, our Chick Fil A was right next door to a a, a Taco Bell. Um, and by right next door, I mean like the drive-through lanes were on the same side and we're like 12 feet apart. And, and over time. I noticed something that was a little bit interesting uh, about the employees of Taco Bell. When they were on their break, they would stroll right on over to our Chick Fil A, and they would come up to the walk-in window. They would order their food. They would sit in our like uh, little air outside seating area, and they would eat uh, their spicy sandwich, hold the pickles, Colby Jack, large waffle fry, medium lemonade meal right there in front. So, so part of my job was that in the summers specifically, I would work outside, which meant. I like cleaned tables and refilled drinks and got to talk to people. So I got to meet some of these people that worked at Taco Bell. And uh, they decided that they were going to start like a rivalry kind of thing with us. By that, I mean, they just said kind of like uh, things I'm not going to say up here to me, but, but they, they always like circulated because they'd be wearing their like Taco Bell gear. And they're like, yeah, we're going to like Real few. I'm just kidding. They didn't have that accent at all. Um, but they, but they would basically be like, they'd say stuff like, Hey, yo, just so you know, like our food's better than yours, which everyone knows is a lie. Right? Like that's not true. Um, but I was like, okay, my pleasure. Right? Like it was, it was just like, just like, just trying to play along with it. Um, now, I was like a freshman. And if you know my story, I've been following Jesus for like six months at this point. So I was saved, but I wasn't soft. And so there was just like a point where, there was a point where uh, I kind of like snapped a little bit. I'm not saying this is good. I'm just saying that it, 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 it happened. Um, and what ended up happening is I looked over at them and I, they, they said it one too many times. And I said, bro, you came to our house. We didn't come to yours. Every time you order a meal here, you're paying my check. Like it was like a, a, a it was a little sharp, um, not my best moment, um, but, my, uh, but, but my supervisor, Charlotte, like caught me in it. She's like, that's funny. Never do it again. Um, and, and all, sorry, all, all that to say, it's, it's interesting to note how you can claim something like Taco Bell is better than Chick-fil-A and then go and do something that doesn't align with that at all, right? Like it doesn't make sense to say Taco Bell is better than Chick-fil-A and then come spend your money that you made at Taco Bell and buy Chick-fil-A. Like there's a difference between something that is claimed and something that is done. And when there's a difference between something that's claimed and something that is done, one has to ask themselves which is more genuine. Which is more genuine, what is claimed by somebody or what is done by someone? This idea is actually what James is going after in our text this evening, the claim, the gap between claiming faith and living faith. He's actually been going after that since the beginning of the book. In James chapter 1, verse 1, James roots his introduction of himself and of this letter and saying, I'm a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's writing to Christians uh, who would also, by nature of being Christians, also be servants of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not possible to claim to be a Christian and not also say you're a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And James has been laying out the flow of faith from the beginning of this moment in the book. From chapter one, verse three, he says, consider it a great joy whenever you experience various trials, as if he's to say, if, if you say, claim that you're in Christ who's supreme over everything, then what flows is that you can consider it a great joy when you experience trials because they form endurance. Chapter 1, verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God and it will be given to them. If you claim that you're in Christ who is wisdom, then what flows is that you would ask for wisdom from God, trusting his wisdom over any other. If you look at verse one, chapter 1, verse 22, where it says, be doers of the word, not hearers only deceiving yourselves. If you claim you're in Christ, then what flows is that you aim to do the word and not just hear it because you trust the one who gives it to you. Last week, thinking about James chapter 2, verses one through 13, not practicing favoritism, but showing mercy that if you've received mercy from Jesus, then what flows from that mercy is that you show mercy to others. All that to say this, James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26 is not introducing a new idea into the thought of James. This section of scripture is laying out plainly what James has been saying from the beginning of this book, that there is a flow to faith, that what we claim should shape how we live. The flow of faith is that it displays itself in good works towards others around us. And as James takes us into this text, he's bringing up that same question that I brought up for the guy from Taco Bell. What's more genuine? What's claimed or what's done? And now we're gonna have to get to work a little bit this evening. Um, We're gonna hang out in the first verse for a little while and then we're going to zip through the rest of it because if you're not paying really close attention which is really easy to pull from this text is that this idea that your works are actually what earn your faith or earn your position before god which is not only not what i'm saying and not only not what james is saying but it is the opposite of what he and i are both saying in this text what he is saying in this text so we're going to do a little bit of work. We've got a couple slides. Right? It wouldn't be a, I got slides tonight, guys. Don't worry about it. I drew a little bit. That's not a shock if you've ever met up with me. There's always something I'm drawing. So it's okay. It'll be on the screen though. Um, James chapter two, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such a faith save him? If, if you have a Bible, I want you to circle the words works and claims. Works and claims. If you're taking notes, write down works and claims, right? We've got to deal with this word works. This text has been used by people to claim that there are inconsistencies in the Bible, to claim that James is contradictory to Paul, who wrote about two-thirds of the New Testament, or that James is contradictory towards Jesus. And the reason that people come to that conclusion is because they ignore what James means when he uses this word works. So let's take a step back and I wanna teach you something really important about Bible reading just for a moment. What you think or what I think the word works means as we read this text doesn't matter. (laughs) Ta-da, right? No, like like, what you think as you read that word and what I think as I read that word doesn't matter. It doesn't. Uh, Your opinion of this word as you read it means nothing because you did not write this letter. James did. So what James meant when he wrote this word is actually what is important for us as we read this text. It's not what we think. It's not the meaning that we impose on it. It's not the presupposition or, 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 or past history of, of this idea of what works and faith looks like. What's important is to understand what James meant when he wrote it. This is the principle of authorial intent, to read the Bible, to understand what the author of scripture meant as they read it, not reading it and imposing our own meaning on the text. It's one of the most dangerous and destructive ways of reading the Bible. So what does James mean when he uses this word works? To answer that question we have to answer a couple others because James has a specific concern and a specific audience and a specific problem that he is getting after. Now we've done this work so I'll just bring it uh, up back just as a point of review as we've worked through James but let's lay it out. James's concern In writing this letter is to help his audience, a group of people who have claimed to be Christian, to genuinely walk in their faith in Jesus Christ. The problem that James is addressing is the genuineness of their faith. He wants them to know that their faith is genuine so that they can take heart in the suffering that they are facing. James is writing to them about the flow of faith, what a genuine outworking of faith looks like in the life of someone who claims to believe in Jesus. So with understanding that's what James is saying here, uh, we need to understand the purpose now of the works as James defines them. And there's three dysfunctional views of the relationship between faith and works that James is not saying. And we're gonna get into what he's not saying before we lay out at the end what he is saying. All right, so three things that James is absolutely not saying. Number one, is it that works earn our right standing before Jesus. Let's just get this out of the way. No. James is not saying that our works earn our salvation, our right standing before Jesus. This idea of earning is the first false view of the relationship between faith and works. James isn't talking about how to become a Christian. He's talking about how to live as a Christian. You can put that first slide up on the screen here and we're gonna do a little bit of work through this idea of justification because it's the word that James uses as he continues this passage all the way down. You saw that, right? Abraham was justified, right? Okay, so here's what just. Justification means justification is an instantaneous action of God in which he declares our sin forgiven and Christ's righteousness or right standing or rightness belonging to us and declares us to be righteous in his sight this is the weight of salvation this is what it means to say you are a Christian nothing less that your sin is forgiven by Jesus and you were made righteous because of the work of Jesus. That Christ died and rose again so that your sin could be forgiven and we who believe in him could become and be declared righteous. So here's what's interesting. Here's what we got. So this is this idea of justification. Uh, What what James is not talking about is this first arrow, how to become, how do I become justified? You can check these texts. They'll be up on the screen uh, uh, by the arrow here as well. You could draw it along with me if it's helpful for you. But Ephesians chapter two, verses eight and nine lay out how to become justified where Paul writes and says, for you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not of yourselves so that it's God's gift. It's not from works so that no one can boast. Check that, it's not from works. Your right standing, your salvation is by grace through faith alone. How do I become justified? By grace through faith in Jesus Christ and what he has done, not from your works. So that's Paul's words in Ephesians 2, 8, 9. What about Jesus in John chapter 14, verses I just said six up there, so we'll just do verse six. Jesus told them, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus says, I am the only way to heaven, and here's how you get to the Father. Here's how you get to God. Here's how you become a friend of God, family with God. You come to me, you come to Jesus by grace through faith, not of yourself. God's gift you come to him who is the way the truth and the life how do I become justified by grace through faith in Jesus Christ tracking we're good all right how do I become is question number one question number two is what James is addressing how do I live how do I live Now, these texts, you're going to notice, are very close to the ones that we just read. Ephesians 2, verses 8, 9, and now 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God created and prepared ahead of time for us to do. John 14, 15, just a few verses later, if you love me, Jesus says, you'll keep my commands. Not that, if you keep my commands, you'll prove that you love me. But if you love me, an outworking of that will be that you keep my commands. James is on this side of justification. He's not answering the question, how do I become justified? He's saying, as I've been justified, how now do I live. Ephesians 2.10, God set up good works for every single person on planet earth who would come to put their trust in him. John 14.15, as we love him, it overflows into these works, these good works of keeping his commands. But something to clarify before we move on is that works do not earn Works are not on this side. The only work that matters on that side of this picture is the work of Jesus Christ in dying for our sin and rising victoriously so that we might have new life in him. Everything on this side is simply asking the question, how do I live in light of what Christ has done? So works first don't earn, but they also don't maintain works don't maintain. A second false view of the relationship between works and faith is that works maintain my right standing before God. It's as if Jesus did enough to save me maybe, but he didn't do enough to keep me. Remember our definition of justification. Sorry, you can throw it back up on the screen. I apologize. It's this idea of Christ's righteousness belonging to to us, This is the theological idea of imputation. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that he, Christ made those who, uh, sorry, God made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. That is not an incomplete work, that is a complete and full work. That you are fully forgiven and you are made fully righteous. Think of these words from Jesus in John 10, verses 27 and 29. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Jesus has done not only enough to save you, Christian, he has done enough to keep you. No one can snatch you from his hand, not even you now the one who saves us shapes us the one who saves us so that we might become justified shapes us as we ask the question day after day moment by moment how now do we live but just pause and just think about a moment like the faithfulness of Jesus Christ to not only save you but also to keep you i was thinking about second timothy chapter 2 verse 13 earlier today Paul's writing this letter to Timothy, and he says, even when we are faithless, he's still faithful. I love that so much about Jesus, that even in the moments when I fall short, Man, I have become justified, and no, I'm not what I'll yet be, but I'm also not what I used to be. I'm still asking the question, how do I live? How do I live? How do I live? And in those moments when I'm faithless, I'm reminded that he's still faithful. He saves, and he keeps. This is the flow of faith that our works do not earn or maintain our justification, but that faith in Jesus Christ produces good works as we live and move and have our being in him. Which actually means we have to deal with one more false view of the relationship between faith and works. It does not earn, it does not maintain, but works are also not absent from faith. This is what James is getting at in his, writing. This is the dysfunctional view he's trying to crush and as it relates to how we live as we are those who claim to be justified by Jesus Christ. That's that second word by the way James so intentionally uses here in the text. He says claim. Verse 14, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works, can such a faith save him? And the answer to that rhetorical question by the way is no. Alistair Begg says it like this. He says that works are not a proof of faith, but an absence of works in our life should bring our faith into question. That just as faith without works are dead, yes, so also works without faith are dead. There's another part in this passage though where he drives this point home. It's in the final paragraph of James chapter two. I'm just gonna jump up to the verses. You can throw that slide up. I apologize by the way. I couldn't get Canva to do this how I wanted to, so I had to draw it, so just deal with me. Um, all right. Uh, James chapter two, verse 22 through 24, slide one. You see that faith was active together with his works, Abraham's works, and by his works, faith was made complete. That the end of the faith that he had in God was seen to be complete once he was living that faith out in his life. And scripture was fulfilled and says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Let's do a little bit of work here, slide two. All right, okay, this is what I'm saying. Okay, so you see that this faith was active together with his works, that there's this faith working itself out. But look at verse 24, that phrase you see is not like saying like, you. See? Like, proved it. Like, that, that's not what he's saying. He's, it, it literally is saying, uh, you stare at, or you discern, or you understand. Do you understand that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone? He's saying that you see, you understand, you stare at, you can discern or understand that a person is justified. How? By seeing their works. Not just by faith Alone, because you can't see faith, but you can see works. Slide three to make this a little bit more clear. There it is, Um, right? (laughs) You see this coming together, active together with his works and by worth, faith was made complete. Both of those pointing to that arrow, connecting faith to works. Uh, Look at this, you see to take verse 24 and structure it a little bit more to kind of the flow of thought. You see by works that a person has been justified uh, not by faith. Alone, This justification coming and being credited as righteousness because Abraham believed in God and he was called God's friend. This is this beautiful reality of verses 22 and 24, not contradicting the idea that faith is through grace alone. James is not saying that he's justified by works. James is saying that you see that someone has been justified by seeing their works that have flowed from their faith. Where does righteousness come from? Belief in God, faith in God, and works flow from this faith in Jesus Christ. James is articulating a visualization here of the flow of faith. You see that a person is justified. You can see the justification taking place in their life as you see their faith produce works in them. Works are faith made visible. This is the picture of the flow of faith. This is the weight of James. James is not contrasting faith in works. He's contrasting genuine faith with false faith. Genuine faith has works following after it. Genuine faith has works that are faith being made visible. A false faith is claimed but never seen. Imagine it like this for a moment. Imagine if I'd like scurried into Salt Company real late and Tyler had done all the announcements and read the scripture and I ran up here and I said, I'm sorry guys, I'm late, Uh, but I was late because on my way in, I was just walking from where I parked my car and out of the med center, someone just blazed through and hit me with their car. I'm so sorry, I got hit by a car, but I'm here and I'm good now. Open up your Bibles to James chapter two. That would be a little odd. Mostly, no jokes, because it does not look like I've been hit by a car, I think. Um, No, but like imagine, like if I got hit by a car, you would expect that I'd have some kind of limp or that my clothes would be torn or that I'd be bleeding and scraped up at at least a, a, a little bit. If I claimed that I got hit by a car, you would expect to see evidence of that on me. My claim and my appearance, though, would be incompatible. James is saying that it's not claiming that faith alone with no evidence of works, no uh, outworking of works, no flow of faith, but rather these works are faith made visible. Jesus actually talks about this in Matthew chapter seven, which is a text that I think that James is drawing from as he writes this portion of scripture. Matthew seven, verses 21 and 23, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven but only the one who does the will of my father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name and do many miracles in your name? And then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. Jesus is saying, you did what you wanted, but you never did the will of God. You never followed me. I never knew you. Let me be so very clear to you, Salt Company. Church attendance does not save you, Connection group does not save you. Your practices do not save you. Leadership does not save you. Staff will not, cannot, does not save you. Only Jesus Christ can justify you. And if you've been justified by Jesus, if you go on, as Jesus would say from here, to build your life on the rock that is Christ, then what comes out of your life, what flows from your faith will be good works. But an absence of such works should cause you to call your faith into question not for someone else to look in your life and call it to question, not for you to look into someone else's life and call them into question, but for you to do some of the work at the end of chapter one in the book of James and look into the mirror of the word and ask, am I really in Christ? If I can go just a step further, I think this is one of the most frustrating things that people who aren't Christian actually experience from people who are Christian when someone claims to have been saved by God through Christ, when someone claims to have been rescued by grace from eternal hell through Jesus Christ who is the only way to heaven and then their life remains completely the same as it was before, if I'm completely honest with you, I think that's part of what an unbelieving campus finds entirely unbelievable. That we would claim to know so much about God. We would claim such relationship with him. We would claim such love from him and love of others and our lives would look entirely unchanged. How could someone claim so much to be true about Christ and what he's done and there'd be no noticeable alteration in the way in which we love our lives or, sorry, in which we live our lives or love our neighbors? Further, just as a moment here, this also means that we don't expect people who aren't Christian to act Christian if anything that comes out of that is a work of faith is on this side of justification. It makes no sense to expect people who are not Christian to act Christian. That, that doesn't make sense. What then is the relationship between faith and works? It's what we've been saying across the board. The flow of faith is that a genuine faith in Jesus Christ works itself out in our lives through good works. That as you are justified by faith, that faith displays itself in and through our lives. John Calvin said it like this. He said, faith alone justifies, but the faith that justifies is never alone. The flow of faith reveals the marks of faith on our life as you follow the way of Jesus and love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You love your neighbor also as you love yourself. This is the flow of faith, that as we have been justified by Jesus, what follows and what comes out of it are the good works that he set apart from us. We obey his commandments because we love him, but we love him because he loved us first that these works are faith made visible. With all that said, James offers three categories that our faith can fall in should we do an honest examination of our lives. We show us that our faith is either dead, demonic, or on display. Let's look back at the text. James two fourteen through 16. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith and does not have works? can such faith save him? We have worked through that. Verse 15, if a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm, be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, if it does not have works, faith is dead by itself. So up first is the dead faith that James talks about, a faith that is more concerned with looking like a Christian than actually being one. You've got to note the severity. James gives such a stern warning because he has such a deep love for the people that he is writing to. And he's writing about this faith that is more concerned about looking Christian than actually being a follower of christ know how james says this person claims to have faith but it is a faith that cannot save it is a faith that is more concerned with the image that that person is portraying of their faith than actually being obedient to the one that they claim to have faith in look at the tension that james lays out here where if this person with a dead faith knows how to say the right things but there's no movement in their lives there's no outworking of the faith that they claim to have It's as though words words, um, will serve us, but our works serve others. Words cost us nothing, but works often cost us greatly. This is an antitype of the good Samaritan, the story that Jesus told about the scribe who walked by the man who was beat up on the side of the road, and the religious Pharisee that walked by the man who was beat up on the side of the road, and then a Samaritan walks by, and the Samaritan stops and tends to the man, gives him a place on his animals so the beat up and robbed man doesn't have to walk, and then takes him to a hotel and pays for his stay, pours expensive oil on his wounds to clean them and to heal them, and then pays some more and says, hey, if he spends any more than this I'll be back with more money to cover his cost and when Jesus asks who was that person's neighbor the scribe says the one who showed him mercy words serve us but works serve others words cost nothing works will cost us sometimes everything Faith without works is like walking by the man on the side of the road or walking by him and saying something, but actually not stopping and slowing down our lives to show the love that we claim to have received from Jesus ourselves. We claim one thing and then we do another. This faith is dead, James says. There's no life there. There's no outworking, not even a desire for it to be worked out. And if that faith is dead, then what is a faith that is alive? A faith that is alive is a faith that does what it can for who it can. This is not to say that you need to be the savior of Madison. It is to say, how can you love the neighbor on your corner, on your dorm, in your apartment, on your street? What does it look like for you to bring the love of God that has come towards you into your interactions with others to be so wrapped up in the gospel that's justified you that you move with that same love towards those who are around you because of the love that you first received through Christ himself. means we don't just say the right words but we slow down our lives to love the one who is in need we come to them just as christ came to us i wonder what a prayer every morning could look like if god was to answer it in our lives if we were to say god what would it look like for me to follow you today with a faith that's alive i wonder what He'd do with that prayer is our faith dead or alive second is our faith in alignment with the demons, is it demonic? James 2, 18 through 19. But some will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I'll show you faith by my works. You believe that God is one, good. Even the demons believe and they shudder. James is using a hypothetical theological conversation to present a very real and rebellious problem. The opposition, the false opposition of faith and works. He presents this story as if someone comes to him and says, hey, uh, you have one, but I have the other. And James shuts that down real fast. He says, show me your faith without your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. Again, it's this picture of faith, of, of works making faith visible. And again, this is James making the argument that faith and works aren't in opposition. Genuine faith and fake faith are in opposition. One that is convicted by their faith to do good works, and the other simply claims faith and does nothing with it. But James takes this actually a step further because this hypothetical rebellious conversation lies in the realm of intellect and doctrine. James assumes that the person who asks this question is attempting to manipulate their knowledge of theology and doctrine to get out of obeying what Jesus has said. So James gets after them in verse 19 where he says, you believe that God is one. James makes a claim here from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 8, which was a part of a creed known as the Shema, that Jewish men and women would remember and recite over and over and over. In fact, before Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself, he quotes this and says, the Lord our God is one. James is saying, you believe the Lord your God is one, good. So do the demons. You have this purely intellectual assent when it relates to your faith. Good. Seems like so do the demons. It's a faith that looks at Jesus more like a problem to solve than a savior to follow. It looks at Jesus and says, I'm going to master faith, rather than it says, I'm going to be a servant of Christ. You believe that God is one. Good for you. Do you believe what comes next after that? Even the demons believe that God is one. A demonic faith is one that intellectually looks at God with a kind of comprehension that has no effect on one's life. You're going to believe that God is one. Do we believe what comes next, that we are to love him then with our heart, mind, soul, and strength with ourselves, and then to love our neighbor as we love ourselves? Even the demons have the decency to shudder because they know that knowing theological tidbits and answers to a few questions is not genuine faith in Christ. Perhaps that's because this kind of faith believes that there is a God who is one, but does not put their trust in the God who is one. The the ascent of reality and the affection of relationship are two very different things. They're as different as knowing about someone and actually knowing somebody. They are not the same thing. So maybe you've known a rebellious faith like this or an intellectual faith like this for years. What would a relational faith look like? Maybe you've known about God for years. You grew up in the church. You grew up around the Bible in a family where you had all the answers to the questions, but it always lived up top here and never made its way down to your soul. Jesus has always felt distance. He's always been that added extra that you memorize facts about, but not Lord and Savior, not a friend of sinners. Believing that he is is different from believing in him. If you believe that he is, you can just know enough about Jesus to be dangerous and keep yourself distant from him shaping your life. If you believe in him, if you start to take the baby steps of putting your trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior, then you step into this flow of faith, the adventure of a life with him, wherein faith in Jesus Christ himself is working itself out in this good works. You can be what James calls Abraham, a friend of God. Just think about that for a moment. Like, is that the way that you think of yourself in relation to God? Who am I? Who is God? And the answer would be that I am God's friend. It's the invitation of a relational faith with Jesus. So dead faith can come alive through Christ. And rebellious faith and and intellectual faith and distant faith can become relational in Christ. And as this happens, our faith is put on display. Very similar to Abraham and rehab. That we rehab. Rahab. Sorry. That we see in verses 20 through 26. We read it before and we got into it a little bit, but I love that James uses both Abraham and Rahab because he could not have possibly picked two different people. They have different genders, one is a man, one is a woman, different offices. One is the patriarch of the nation of Israel, the other is a prostitute in the city of Jericho. They have different ethnicities, one is Hebrew, one is a Canaanite. They have different pasts, they have different stories. And James is saying none of those things matter as it relates to faith, because they have the same faith. Their justification is seen through their lives. Their response to God and who he is is seen in the way that they live their lives. Their works flow from their faith. This was their justification. It was their faith on display. They had been justified and people were able to see it and remember it and and, and reflect it in their own lives by looking at the way that they followed after God. Who God was was so moving to them, so powerful for them that they looked to him for salvation salvation and it shaped the way they lived their lives. Their faith flowed into works showing it to be alive. They looked ahead to what was coming. They had hope that God would send a Savior. We look back remembering that he already has. They looked ahead and said our justification will come. We know that God will send it and so in light of our faith in God that he will save us, these works will make our faith visible. We look back and say, we know that Jesus Christ has come and he has lived the perfect life that we couldn't live. And he has died the death on the cross that you and I deserve. And he has risen again and that we are justified by grace through faith. That the one who rose from the grave is the same one that said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So the invitation is that we can come to the Father through Jesus Christ. And now our works and our life as we live on this side of Jesus justification as we look back at the cross are making our faith in him visible and if we claim to have been saved by him how could we not also want the entirety of our lives to be shaped by him as well like can you imagine that again like i know i've paused to do that a couple times and that's not some rhetorical device that i'm using because i'm up in front of you with the microphone i want you to actually picture that like Like what would a life that is fully shaped by the one who has saved you look like for you? Like who would Christ be if he was you for the sake of those around you? Like that's the life that James is saying is available to us. That even in the moments when we're faithless that he is still faithful because he's so good that we've been justified. We are righteous before God. And now we are living out and living into that righteousness that he's already purchased for us. Not something that we earn, not something that we maintain, but something that we step into as we follow after him, step by step by step. So maybe you need to come to Jesus for the first time that you're on this side of justification. You're asking, how do I become a follower? How do I become justified? You, you come to Jesus. By grace through faith, he'll save you. He'll forgive you of your sin. He'll give you new life in himself, everlasting life as you put your trust in him. But maybe tonight what some of us need to do, what I've needed to do this week is examine my faith. It's to examine your faith you feel like, oh, I think I'm trending towards my faith being dead. A Little more concerned with words than with works, a little more concerned with how I look in front of others than if I'm actually following after Jesus. Jesus can make your faith alive again and more lively than you've ever known. If you've fallen short in that, you say, I have this week, the first work on this side of justification may actually be repentance you just coming to Jesus and saying, Jesus, I wanna turn from this way and follow after you. You could do that tonight. Maybe your faith lives in your head. It's, it's this idea of this demonic faith or, or this intellectual, this rebellious faith, um, or, or this faith that just, just only lives up in your mind. He can make it relational again. I find myself slipping into that sometimes. I read a lot of books. <laughs> And it can get me in this place where I think I've got him figured out. And then he does something that just reminds me that I am just a friend of God. That's the title that I want. Not that I've got him figured out, but I'm just as, I'm his friend because of what Christ has done. I'm a son because of what Christ has done. If it feels intellectual, he can make it relational. You can go from knowing about God to knowing God, just like Abraham, you can be called a friend of Maybe your faith is on display. I want to invite you to ask for strength and opportunity. I see that in the lives of so many of you. I'm so proud of you. It's like the coolest thing to get to see grace on your lives and the gospel working itself out as you follow after Jesus. Ask him for strength and for opportunity. If you ask God to provide someone in front of you to love and show those good works that he set apart for you from the foundations of the world too, he'll always answer that prayer with the person that's right in front of you. So maybe it's one of those things you need to do. What we wanna do just right now is just give you a little bit of time to respond. So you can close your eyes and bow your heads and however you need to respond. Maybe you need to come and put your faith in Jesus. You're, you're not asking, how do I live? You're asking, how do I become? The invitation from Christ tonight would be to become a friend of God by trusting in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Maybe you just have heard one of those sections and you're like, I'm falling into that. Ask God tonight to bring life, to bring relationship, to bring strength, to bring opportunity, whatever it may be. You'll take some time, respond where you are, and then we'll sing.